Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast about mental health. I'm your host, Zora, and this podcast is brought to you by Limbic. Daisy Carter is a high-intensity CBT therapist with additional training in DBT skills. She currently works remotely for NHS Talking Therapies Isle of Wight. Daisy is the founder of the National NHS Talking Therapies LGBTQ Plus Champions Network and the chair of the BABCP LGBTQ Plus Special Interest Group. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Daisy, I'm super excited to share your story and your journey in talking therapy. So I'm just going to get right into it. How did you get here? Thank you. So, yeah, I was reflecting on where my journey started. And actually, it started when I was quite young, probably under 10. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up in Yorkshire. And we were always volunteering. We were volunteering for MENCAP, which was a service for people with learning disabilities. And I used to like go with my grandparents when they were like driving around the bus to pick people up. And there were some really lovely connections I just remember making there. And then as I got older, my granddad was doing a lot with the British Legion. So we were always kind of going into people's houses, trying to kind of assess like if they needed any support. So I think for me, it's always been kind of in the background, like other people's stories and kind of the other people might live different lives to me. So then I got a bit older, I went into TV and I know that sounds like a little bit of a different kind of path, but I think on reflection, it's that interest in people's stories for me. I'm really nosy and people, I love hearing about people and their, their stories and things that have, have happened to them. So yeah, I was in working in TV and in the back of my mind, I was thinking, Maybe later on, you know, when I'm a bit older, I'll go and be a social worker, you know, maybe actually do something practical to help people. So I did. I went, I started doing support work with people who were, had learning disabilities and um, mental health problems. And then I went to uni and did a social work master's. The NHS funded that, which was fantastic. Can't thank them enough. And then I was a mental health social worker in central Manchester for around five years. So I was working with people who have severe and enduring mental health problems, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, these kinds of things. And I really enjoyed it, working in a really kind of deprived area of of the city. A lot of challenges there, a lot of socioeconomic deprivation. But there was something just I really did enjoy about it. But there was also kind of, I knew that I wanted to be doing more with, with people. So the pandemic hit and I'm sure like most people have a little bit of a crisis. What am I going to do? So on the off chance, I applied for a CBT training post in Blackburn. Did not expect to get on it whatsoever, but I did, which was fantastic. So I did my training in Manchester as a CBT therapist during the pandemic. And then, so I qualified a couple of years ago. And since then, I've been working remotely for the Isle of Wight as a CBT therapist. I'm also doing my IPT training, so interpersonal psychotherapy, which I'm really enjoying. So I'm nearly qualified in that as well. So, yeah, I suppose that's a really long, long-winded way of me saying that I've always been interested in people and their stories and now getting to help people on kind of a therapeutic level is just really the best job for me. That is fantastic. So I suppose we could maybe call in a typical journey, starting off from TV. Yeah, definitely. Work-wise. <laughs> yeah, I guess like. so. Yeah, <laughs> I think that maybe that's a bit of an understatement, to be honest. But yeah. 
And why do you think talking therapies is, well, I suppose you were saying it was fulfilling working with people in, in, in I guess, more, so you're looking at step three and, and higher. Yeah, yeah. Do you find this satisfying in a different way? How does it feel differently to that sort of work? I think it feels different. I suppose as a social worker, it was very much practical things. So in terms of maybe let's make sure you're getting the right benefits, maybe if you need to move house, doing these kinds of things. So they were kind of the fulfilling elements of that job. Whereas I think being a therapist, it's really seeing people kind of go on that that journey in terms of their mental health and seeing that people can kind of recover from kind of depression or whether it's OCD and just being able to like give them the tools and the techniques to be able to, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but like be their own therapist in the future. And that is something for me that's really rewarding, seeing that real tangible progress with people in such a short space of time. Absolutely. Super fulfilling. Absolutely. Definitely. So when you joined the service, I guess you established the role really as an LGBTQ plus champion. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, LGBTQ plus champions exist in all NHS talking therapy. Well, not all of them. Maybe, maybe half of them. They exist in services kind of throughout the UK. But I did notice that when I started working for the Isle of Wight, that there wasn't anyone in that role. And I had a really, really supportive clinical lead. And he said to me, if you've got an interest in in this area and working with LGBTQ plus people, then then go ahead and, you know, be the champion and I'll support you with whatever you, you need to do that role. So it wasn't there. So I I set it up and I started making connections with charities, LGBTQ plus kind of charities on the island, the LGBTQ plus police liaison worker. So just kind of making those connections. And having a presence at Pride as well on the island has been really important for our visibility. That's great. I didn't realise there were sort of counterparts in services like the police. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of a point for, especially somewhere like the Isle of Wight, for kind of reporting hate crimes and supporting people who might be experiencing homophobia or kind of any discrimination. Right. And what difference do you think it makes to patients? Yeah. So in terms of the patients that I work with, I think it can often be really helpful that they know that I'm from the community, that they're going to be speaking to an LGBTQ plus person and that a lot of the time we kind of don't need to explain perhaps certain nuances that might come with being LGBTQ plus. I think that can be helpful. And also them knowing that I can kind of help them if they need signposting to other support services on the island, that can be helpful. And it also works the other way. So if there's someone who, for example, runs the trans support group on the island, if they think, actually, I know someone who might benefit from some talking therapies, they can refer them in to me. Um, so I think generally it's been been really helpful and really successful um, to play that part on the island. Yeah, just making it a little bit easier, maybe reducing the barriers to, to access since they know what it is that, that they'll be receiving. Definitely. And I think yeah, that can kind of get lost a little bit. Even when I speak to people, kind of members of the public now, they don't even know that they can access therapy for free, um, which always blows my mind a little bit. But I really like that we can kind of get that message out there. And I've been to the LGBTQ plus youth groups on the island and I've you know explained we're here, this is what we do. We're queer affirmative, you know, if you want to speak to someone from the community, then, you know, you can see me as your therapist. Uh, just like you said, kind of breaking down those barriers and starting to increase those accessibility rates for, for our LGBT population on the island. 
Daisy, it's fantastic having you there as a champion. I'm just wondering whether your work then extends to the other clinicians in your team. Do you work with, with the team? And I'm just thinking about the word there, the phrase queer affirmative. So if you're queer affirmative, that's great. But I guess you kind of need lots of people to be to make sure that the service is. Of course, yeah. And I think that's a really important part of what I've done and what I continue to do within our team. So I've delivered training sessions to my team, just explaining to them kind of any any kind of nuances that they might have to kind of consider or any considerations, cultural considerations when working with someone from our community. And they also kind of use me as a bit of a sounding board if they're working with someone and they're not sure kind of how to approach a situation or if someone particularly, I work with a lot of people where they're transferring over from CAMS, a lot of young people. And so I'm always kind of available for my colleagues in terms of that training, in terms of that ongoing support as well. And I think that on the island, I am incredibly lucky that well, our patients are lucky on the island that we've got a fantastic team of therapists. They really are. And, and they've got that team and they've got you all the way from Yorkshire working remotely there. I am, yes. I do go down Making to the a difference island a couple of times a year, always for pride. And then usually just for a team day, just to make sure that I'm spending that time with my colleagues. They're a fantastic bunch of people and I, I do really enjoy working for the team. And without naming any names or breaching any confidentiality, and I wonder if you can kind of maybe anonymise it a little bit, but could you give us an example of something that a colleague has come with that you've been able to make a difference to, or maybe a conception or an assumption that maybe someone had that you were then able to work on? Yeah, of course. Uh, for me, I think maybe one of the biggest changes that has come as a result of my training with the team has been the use of pronouns on email signatures. I think that's a fantastic example of maybe explaining why we we have our uh, pronouns on, on our signatures and just seeing when I'm getting kind of emails back from my colleagues and seeing that they've got that there, it's it just feels like such a, an achievement. Even though it might, for some people who aren't from the community, it might seem like a really small thing, but actually if someone is from the community, if they're identifying as trans or non-binary, it's just really nice for them to be able to kind of see if they get any correspondence from us that actually these people get it and they they know kind of a little bit more perhaps than than other people might do about LGBTQ plus issues. Yeah. And was that a bit of a culture change, putting pronouns in signatures? I think so. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot, not necessarily from my team, but when I've spoken to people nationally, maybe a lot of people say, no, well, why, why should I do that? A lot of kind of questioning about it but generally I think once people understand that it's about showing that we're accessible and that we're supportive to queer people then generally it's it's been met with with quite a good response and I know someone on another team that I was talking to he said it's been really helpful and I would agree in terms of if we get our managers to put put their pronouns on kind of has a knock-on effect to other people in the service. Absolutely it's it's so nice seeing managers kind of model the culture of the service. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was the Isle of Wight service yeah. and you've kind of extended it a little bit, the Champions Network. Yeah, just just a little bit, just to the whole country. <laughs> <laughs> just to England. Yeah, just to England. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what I was thinking when, so I was champion for a few months within my team and then I thought, there's other champions, there must be other champions. Surely there's a group maybe where everyone meets. And there, there wasn't. I kind of put something on the NHS Futures Forum and there wasn't really anything. So I thought, why don't I set up a, a national network of LGBTQ plus champions um, within NHS Talking Therapies? And 
I was kind of waiting for maybe someone from NHS England, so anyone to knock, you know, to kind of send me an email and be like, you can't do that. Um, <laughs> and no one ever has. Um, so this, the network, we meet every six to eight weeks and we meet online and we've got a hundred, I think just over a hundred champions now, which is absolutely fantastic. I, you know, I'm not going to say that everyone comes to every meeting because obviously the pressures of talking therapies means that it's hard to get time off. But just knowing that we're all there in that space and we share best practice ideas, we share research and we have sometimes kind of guest speakers coming along if they're doing a PhD about something related to the community, then um, they kind of share share their research with us. And it's also a really good place for kind of peer support as well. So yeah, it's, it's really grown from, I think I started it in September 22. So yeah, it's, it's, it's well. So that's based, that's almost, let's say there are 170, 180 odds. I'm just thinking how much work that must be. So trying to get people on an hours meeting at the same time is hard enough when you've got a hundred of them and then you've got people emailing you every week. Yeah. How do you, how do, I mean, does it get, does it get tiring? Where do you get the energy from? Yeah. How do you fit it all in, Daisy? <laughs> I feel like my team are really supportive in terms of allowing me perhaps a little bit extra time here, here and there. Not necessarily a reduction in my caseload, but just giving me that time perhaps to, you know, kind of set up the meetings or, or send emails. I'm also lucky that sometimes other people do the minutes for the meeting. So that means that that's something that I don't have to do. But I think when you're really passionate about something and about improving the experience of LGBTQ plus people and their, their therapy experience, then it doesn't really feel like work or it doesn't feel like a chore because it's something that I'm really passionate about. So if you were a champion in your service and then you've established the National Champions Network uh, with 100 odd people yeah. and then the BABCP. Yes. So... The BABCP, we all have to be, or we all are, registered with. They've got a number of special interest groups, for example, kind of neurodiversity. But what I noticed was that there wasn't an LGBTQ plus special interest group. So once again, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just. <laughs> so I, I spoke to a few people who had tried to set it up, but because there's a lot of paperwork involved in it and it, it's a lot of effort, isn't it? You know, we're all really busy in service, but I thought, do you know what? I, I, when, when I say I'm going to do something, I try and, and do it. So I, yeah, I submitted the application. We've got a few other people that are, are on the board. Alan Laville, I think you're um, going to be having an interview with him. He's on our board as well. And Joe, I set that up, gosh, probably about six months ago now. I think it was in... Yeah, it was in the summer. It's, um, and we're also going to be at the BABCP conference in July, which is really exciting. Going to have a presence there. So yeah, we've got, I think we've got maybe about 80 members so far. But that's considering that we're in early days. I'm really pleased with that. And we organise CPD events for BABCP members. And we're also going to be organising kind of a few different things for LGBT History Month as well. So we've got kind of lots coming up in the next year for the special interest group. It really sounds like it. And I'm just wondering if I was a PWP and I had a special interest in something. So we're talking about the LGBTQ plus community and patients and clinicians. But if I had a kind of different interest, do you think it is, I mean, you make it sound easy days. I was going to say, do you think it's as easy as, okay, well, I'm going to set up a national champions network and then I'm going to set up a BABCP group and just kind of see how it goes and wait till someone stops me, yeah. basically. I mean... <laughs> 
you think that's possible with different types of special interest as well? I mean, generally, I think if you've got a supportive clinical lead and team behind you and you also kind of reach out to maybe other people that have got a shared interest in whatever area it is that you're interested in, generally, I don't think that there's much that that can stop you really I think that we're really lucky in talking therapies in my experience is that whether it be kind of academics researchers clinicians just having like really supportive people who it feels like have really got you back they're really rooting for you and you know come to the meetings and and help you with things so I definitely you know would say give it a go all right that's very motivational so if you've got a special interest go for it go for it do it See how far you can get before someone tells you to stop. <laughs> I don't forward any emails to me. <laughs> I mean, it is great though because all the all the initiative. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing about it, but all the initiatives that you've set up, all the different bits of CPD training, the insights, the kind of group, the peer learning, all of that sort of stuff is, is incredible, and it really does. I guess it makes a huge difference to clinicians, which then makes a huge difference to patients. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't really understand why the LGBTQ plus Champions Network or the BABCP group needs to exist, what is it that makes these patients different? Or what is it do you think that they need? What do we know about this group of patients that needs particular attention or particular kind of sensitivity? Yeah, of course. So if we look at all the research that's out there, if we think about accessibility rates for talking therapies for people from the LGBTQ plus community, they're much smaller. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but the access rates are significantly lower, as are the recovery rates. So the recovery rates for LGBTQ plus people in talking therapies are significantly lower than people who might be cis or might be straight. When I say cis, I mean someone who identifies as the gender that they were born with. So there's... There's that consideration there that we've got poorer access rates and poorer recovery rates. But we've also got the considerations of um, any of the discrimination that they might face when they so before they've they've come through the doors of therapy. So as well as the poorer access rates, so people not as likely to access therapy, we also know that the outcomes are poorer for people from the community. But we also know that they might be experiencing homophobia. So that might be at home. Or it might be out on the street, they're kind of getting abused if they're holding hands with their partner. There might be someone experiencing transphobia as well. There's also a lot of research being done into the minority stress theory, which is just, is that generally as an LGBT person, we're experiencing even kind of microaggressions. So kind of being under stress just from, for example, having to come out all the time or holding your partner's hand in the street, but almost being a little bit hypervigilant because you're not sure what the reaction's going to be. There's all these kinds of things that, you, that's just the tip of the iceberg if we think about some of the difficulties that, that some of our LGBTQ plus patients might come to us with. So I would say that that's definitely why, just a couple of reasons why we, we do need to kind of consider increasing our subject knowledge and our training around working with this demographic of people. Yeah, you've you've kind of brought to mind two patient stories that I came across in the last few weeks. And one was someone who said they were in the closet and and had referred into talking therapies. And of course, the admin person who was asking them questions right at the beginning. Oh, no, it wasn't the admin. It was the therapist who was doing their assessment. 
ask them the standard questions from talking therapies and one of them is around sexuality and they got really defensive and was very much like well why are you asking about sexuality does that is this going to go on my record is this going to my gp is my family going to see this and and feeling really terrible about being asked in the first place and then and then i guess maybe the opposite end of the scale there with someone who was referring into talking therapies who was very much happy to talk about being gay and the clinician didn't ask that question around sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that person works in talking therapies and so noticed that they weren't asked that question and suddenly thought, well, you didn't ask me that question. Is it because you're uncomfortable? Is it, you know, what is it that's that's making you not ask a thing that you're supposed to ask about me? And just, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's two different ends of the scale. Someone who's happy to talk about it, someone who's very much not, but neither one getting what they need. Yeah, exactly. And I think any therapist should always be considering the social graces which is all the different kind of things that make up our identity from class, gender, sexuality, race, religion. We really need to be considering all these parts of a person. We really need to be kind of focusing around all those those kind of parts of an identity that make, some, make up someone. That's so important and that's often lost or there's a lot of assumptions can be made as well. And we, we've all done it, you know, I'm not... I'm not ever going to say that I'm a perfect therapist because no one is, but it's really important to be considering the the kind of different elements of a person's that make up their identity. And I guess in addition to that, one of the great things about clinical training is around being open to thinking about what your biases are and reflecting on them and, and not sort of saying, well, that means I have zero biases. Actually, it's just about getting to know your biases and getting to know what you don't know. And oh, actually, there's a group of people I don't know too much about. I'd like to know more because they're my patients. Exactly. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's also worth, you know, just because we're from the LGBTQ plus community, it doesn't mean that I specifically know what it might, what a person kind of, a trans person's experience might be. So I'm also really open to knowing that the LGBTQ plus letters, there's so much variety in those and I would never kind of claim to know everything. So like you said, it's really important to be open to hearing people's experiences and also in the kind of continuing your training. In a which, so if I was interested, I'm a clinician, I'm interested in either joining the Champions Network or just getting some more training, what's the best place to go to? Or I was going to say, how do we get in touch with you, Daisy? Yeah. But I don't know if you want 500 people emailing me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my inbox is always open, to be honest. So if you would like to join our Champions Network, you can email me. We've just got a new email address set up and I'm going to send you um, that if that's okay. But generally, if you want to get in touch with me in terms of joining the special interest group, if you go to the members area of your BABCP account, um, there is an option on there for joining different six. There's other ones on there if you want to join them as well. That's fantastic. If you just tick that you want to join our SIG and then you will be added to the list. If you want to kind of find out more about me and what I do. I also offer private therapy, coaching and training. And my website is daisycartertherapy.co.uk and you can get in touch with me through there. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Daisy, for your time, for your insight and for your openness. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. You can find out more about DAISY and the communities of practice we talked about using the links in the episode description. You can find episodes, links and more at the podcast webpage at limbic.ai forward slash top of mind.